Good morning. How are you doing? Happy Easter. Do we say that Good Friday? Oh, we don't. Okay. <laughs> Need to check the protocols. Well, it's good to be here together regardless. My name's Simeon. Um, having watched that video together, I wonder what's the peace that you're looking for this Easter? What's the peace you're looking for this Easter? Maybe it's just uh, some peace and quiet. Maybe that's what you're after. I, um, I showed my wife a funny video um, the other day of uh, a time lapse of a mother trying to get to sleep with her one-year-old throughout the night, and this one-year-old is climbing all over. I don't know if you've seen a similar video before. It's pretty funny. It's hilarious. Maybe that's what your life is like right now. You just want some peace, some peace and quiet. Maybe if you're like my wife, you want the peace of when will my husband get rid of this stupid mo? She told me this morning. Is that the peace you're looking for? A good night's sleep? Or is it a restful holiday? If you've got young kids, let me just uh, tell you what I've learned. It's taken me seven years to realize that a restful holiday with young kids does not exist. It doesn't exist. It took me seven years, and here's the answer. Lower your expectations. In fact, I feel like that's the guide to parenting. Lower your expectations. A relaxing holiday, a lost dream. Maybe for you, it's the hope of actually events like Easter, gathering the family together, and you pour yourself out to bring the family, the sons, the daughters, the brother, the sister, to a gathering. And you hope that this, just once in a year, might be a loving gathering with no fighting, no bickering, no bitterness, no issues. Maybe that's your picture of peace. Maybe the idea of peace in your heart, it's actually tied to the situation of someone else. Maybe there's someone in your life, a son, a daughter, who's struggling. And as they struggle, you can't be at peace. You feel their struggle, their suffering, their loss, their aloneness. And maybe you know recently, having walked down the long and lonely hallways of a hospital, what you found is uncertainty, not peace. Is sadness, not relief. What is peace? Well, we might say it's to be in harmony within oneself, the world, with others. That might be peace. And it's more often than not, as Jeremy's already pointed out, that peace and the pieces we experience, they're momentary, right? They're here for a moment and they're, they're taken from us, like a lost stream, elusive. We spend our time searching and searching, but more searching than finding. I think we often find there is no sense of lasting peace. And this Easter, we'll put the question out, haven't we? Is peace possible? Is it possible that we can find peace? And I think it's the right question. I think it's a question we all want the answer to. Our first reading, it actually gives us an answer to that question of sorts. Did you see it? Isaiah 55, and particularly the first few verses, it helps us with this question because it gives us a biblical picture, which I would say it's pretty peaceful. It's a picture of peace. Have a look at it on the screen with me, if you can read that. Anyway, some of you have a look at that. The rest of you, listen on. I'll read it. It's a picture of peace. We want to grab it. We want to step into that, don't we? And it tells us, yes, peace is possible. Here's the picture. It says this. Verse 1. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. All you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk. Without money, without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread? And on your labor, on what does not satisfy, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the riches of fair. It's a picture of heavenly abundance, isn't it? Complete, peaceful, 
perfect. But we know through our lived experience, this isn't our experience. We can't create or design a peace like that. Well, not in any permanent sense anyway. So the biblical assessment is this. The reason we can't find permanent peace, the reason we can't find peace in our relationships, in the world around us and within ourselves even, we might say these are horizontal relationships between each other, between the world, even in ourselves. But the core of the problem, the Bible will tell us, it's a vertical one. It's between us and God, a relationship between us and our maker. And if we don't first find peace with God, well, then we'll spend our lives on an elusive search for peace that we will not find. And so then the question is, how do the events of Easter, how do the events of Easter help us with this search for peace? How do they bring us true and lasting peace? Can they? Well, let's turn to the passage because we see at first that peace comes through Jesus' pain. We start to see an answer in our passage that peace comes through Jesus' pain. Let's just catch ourselves up from where we are in the Bible, right? We're in John 19. We know we're at Easter, the event of Easter, the cross. But what's happened in the few chapters leading up to John 19? Well, let me tell you, there's been a phony trial. The Jewish high court has gathered Jesus together. They then pulled him in front of Pilate, the Roman governor, where the Jewish leaders pulled together a mob and they pressured Pilate to say, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate relents. He gives in and he allows the crucifixion to go ahead. And now Jesus has been clubbed in the face. He's been severely beaten. He's been flogged with whips and whips that have these bits of bone and metal on the end, the leather strips. And what are they designed to do? To tear strips off your back. It's brutal. It's brutal. A crown of thorns has been placed on his head. And now he's been mocked continuously. He's been tortured and then the ascent to the top of that hill. And all of that before this moment. All of that before the crucifixion. Crucifixion. If you didn't know, that's where we get the word excruciating from. It's the worst form of torture. A terrible way to die. It is designed. It's a designed way to die to inflict maximum suffering. And prolong your life so you'll experience it the whole time. In some Roman settings... A Roman citizens were not permitted to speak of crucifixion. A Roman citizen was not allowed to be crucified. That was for foreigners alone. Now, a crucified body would hang there, either tied or nailed to the wood, slowly be- bleeding, slowly suffocating, and you could last for days, for days. Sometimes they'd even sit a ledge behind you so you could kind of sit up a bit. Why? So you'd last even more days as the life, drain from your body as you lost control of bodily functions and the shame and the pain was overwhelming until you just shut down it's sickening really and verse 28 brings us right into the middle of this picture this moment when jesus is hanging there he's naked he's beaten he's bloodied and he's on that roman cross can you see it verse 28 Later, knowing that everything had now been finished so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked it in a sponge and put the sponge on a stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. You know what he says? He says, I am thirsty. He's now being crucified. 
in the heat of the eastern sun. And you think, yeah, probably thirst is acceptable. Thirst is, I guess, how you'd feel, right? A number of things. But why this request and why now? We haven't heard in John's gospel a request like this. He's been through a lot in the last few chapters. He's been tortured for hours already. So I think there's another reason behind Jesus' cry for thirst. A deeper significance that John wants us to get. And he says it. It's to, be, to fulfill what's been written. To fulfill passages like well, Psalm 69. It's a poem from Israel's most famous king, King David, which expresses his experience of suffering, his experience of isolation. Let me read a few, a few phrases from it. King David says this in Psalm 69. Save me, O God. He says, I am worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs on my head. For I endure scorn for your sake and shame covers my face. And how about this one? They put gall in my food and they give me vinegar for my thirst. See here, Jesus is on the cross fulfilling this prophecy as the suffering king. Jesus' thirst shows that he's both, the suf- both suffering and fulfilling the old Testament prophecy. But you know, thirst in the Bible isn't, is also a metaphor. Uh, we see it reoccur throughout the Bible, a metaphor for one, what one writer calls terminal spiritual emptiness and death. See, when people are away from God in a state of distress, like David in Psalm 69, thirst is often a description for their distressed state. Earlier in John's Gospel, in this biography of Jesus' life that John records earlier in it, he said this, well, he records Jesus saying this, in fact, in John 7, I'm looking for the thirsty, those who are spiritually empty, looking for God. He says this, John seven thirty-seven. Jesus' words, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow out from within him, from within them. Just like what we read in Isaiah 51, come to me, all you who are thirsty. In John's gospel, it is Jesus who offers living water. And if you know your Bible, you might remember a particular episode, actually, in John's gospel, John chapter 4, where Jesus goes to a well in the heat of the day, and he encounters there a woman, who in every way, actually, is, is this picture of thirst, a picture of longing, of need. She went that day as she met Jesus for physical water. But what she found was Jesus, who could see her deeper spiritual need. See, this woman, because of her beliefs, she's a religious outcast in her society. Because of her race, she's an, ethical, she's an ethnic outcast. Because of her gender, she's a social outcast. And because of her past relationships, she's a moral outcast. And do you know what Jesus says to her? In John 4, he says this, Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. The water I give will become in them a source to eternal life. See, Jesus keeps showing us this picture of living water. Of water that brings about eternal life. What's he talking about? He's talking about relationship with God. He's talking about peace with God. Restored relationship with the Father. See, they meet a source of water, but Jesus says, I am the living water. I offer you living water. 
And now here in John 19 on the cross, it's Jesus who runs dry so that he can fill others with this living water, others who thirst. The one who came to bring peace to others, to bring living water to the thirsty, thirsts here on the cross as he suffers. See, thirst is a picture of his suffering because Jesus brings us peace through his suffering. Peace comes through his pain. Now, why is that? Why does Jesus have to suffer? Well, because peace comes through his payment. And we read in verse 29, as we read out already, that vinegary, watered-down wine, sour wine, is there with the soldiers. Soldiers would drink that often, and they give it to Jesus on a sponge. And as they lift it to Jesus, in verse 29, you can see it before you, John, who's watching these events as an eyewitness, he records this detail that a hyssop branch is used to give it to Jesus. It seems like a completely redundant detail as we read it, we would think. Or is it? Is there any redundant detail, we might ask? No, John is giving us a fresh glance. He's giving us a reference to the significance of what is happening here at the cross. And he does it through multiple details in our reading. Let me point a few out to you. There's the hyssop branch. Then he reminds us again, he's already done this a few times in the chapters before, that today is the day of preparation for the Passover, the annual festival in the Jewish calendar. And as Jesus dies, he reminds us that none of his bones were broken. Three details, what do they mean? Here's the message of the details. Jesus suffers at the cross, not to fulfill just a random prophecy. It's not random. It's saying that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, the payment for sins. And John's highlighting that to us as readers. What is taking place at the cross is the fulfillment of the Passover, a tradition that had been celebrated for 1,400 years before. And if you're familiar with that tradition, where does it start? Where does it come from? Well, the Passover event, 1,400 years before, the people of Israel, they were slaves in Egypt. And a great and terrible act of judgment was falling on the land of Egypt. A judgment from God that that the firstborn son of every Israelite and every, every Egyptian would die. It's a devastating judgment. It's a devastating judgment. Think about that for a second. The firstborn son in every family would die. I've got an eldest son. Maybe you do. Maybe you've got a nephew or a brother. I've got three nephews that are eldest sons. So in our family, that would be four. Four young boys. Lachlan, 11. Jude, 8. Bo, 8. And Archer, just four. And the pain of losing them. Wow. We would never recover. They are deeply loved. Who would be missing from your family? How would any family ever recover from that? It's a terrible act of judgment, is it not? But not because God is terrible, but because He is holy. And it shows us how seriously that God takes sin. But He provides a way out for His people. He didn't have to. His judgment was fair, but he does because he's merciful. See, the Israelites, this was the way out, were to take a lamb, an undefiled, healthy lamb. They were to kill it, not to break a bone. And they were to take a branch of hyssop, a hyssop plant, to dip it in that blood and to paint it on the doorpost of their house. 
And that night they were to eat that lamb. That would be the meal, the Passover that is being celebrated here the day after Jesus dies on the cross. Because when God's angel would come through in judgment, he would see the blood on the door and would pass over that household. And so in the morning, they would wake and the Egyptian households would wake to a dead son, but the Israelites to a dead lamb. And here it was, their logic was etched into the minds of every Israelite. The lamb took the place of the son. The lamb took the place of the person. And as we read John's account here of Jesus' death, he recalls the hyssop. He repeats the reference to the day of preparation and how that no bone of Jesus's, in Jesus' body was broken. That John is just pointing us with arrows that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb, the ultimate one, the final one. On the cross, he pays for it. He pays the price. And as John sees the blood dripping down from that cross, on the wooden cross, like that lamb's blood on the doorframe. I'm sure he remembers this is the Passover. This is the Passover. The lamb of God slaughtered in my place as my substitute. See, the cross is the event. Good Friday is the moment where we remember not just a great religious pioneer, but payment for sins. Payment for sins. Mine and yours through the perfect son, the sacrificial lamb. And so you might ask, well, why, why did this have to happen? Why did Jesus have to die? Is death necessary? It's such a gruesome thing we're talking about. And the problem, it comes back to what I said before, that vertical relationship with God, our rejection of God, what the Bible calls sin. You might not call it sin. We might call it our lying, our selfishness, our anger, our lust, our laziness, our bitterness, we could go on, but I think we can agree we sin. That's us. We find ourselves there. We don't have to be too honest to realize that. But the question is, well, how should a holy and just God deal with sinners? How should God deal with human sin? Should he hold us to account? Or should he let us, let us just go? Philosopher and author Sam Harris, he struggles with this idea that we can be held to account, actually. He suggests that even the most violent crimes can be explained in terms of someone's upbringing and circumstances and their neurochemistry. And therefore, in his thinking, we can all be absolved of everything, of responsibility for our actions. In his book, Free Will, he says this, The idea that we as conscious beings are deeply responsible for the character of our mental lives and subsequent behavior, it's simply impossible to map into reality. That's one option. That would take away the problem of sin. We can explain it away. We wouldn't need a cross. We wouldn't need a, he wouldn't need to die. We'd be off the hook, right? But what about justice? What about justice? Let's listen to Rachel Den Hollander. Now, Rachel Den Hollander is a brave young woman who addresses this issue in her victim impact statement of the trial of Larry Nassar. Now, Larry Nassar was the sports doctor of the U.S. National Women's Gymnast Team who was convicted of sexually abusing young girls in his care for 15 years. It's horrific. Rachel, now a lawyer, lived through NASA's abuse and led the case against him, eventually led to his arrest and conviction. And in quite an amazing and long speech, I'll read you part of it, 
she opens and closes her statements with these words. They're confronting. I've filtered a lot of it out, but let me read part of it. She says this, Larry is the most dangerous type of abuser, one who is capable of manipulating his victims through coldly calculated grooming methodologies. He presented this most wholesome, caring external persona as a deliberate means to ensure a steady stream of children to assault. It's confronting. And while Larry is unlikely to live past his federal sentence, he's not the only predator out there. And this sentence needs to send a message about how serious abuse will be taken. And she goes on. So I ask, how much is a little girl worth? How much priority should be placed on communicating that the fullest weight of the law will be used to protect another innocent child from the soul-shattering devastation that sexual assault brings? She says, I submit to you that these children are worth everything, worth every protection law can offer, worth the maximum sentence. Can you hear what she's pleading for? She's crying out for justice. She wants justice. Payment. She wants payment for evil that has been committed against her and more than 200 other young girls. She addresses the judge in her final words in conclusion to her speech. She says, I asked you to hand down a sentence that tells us that what has been done to us matters. That we are known, that we are worth everything, worth the greatest protection the greatest measure of justice. See, justice, that requires sin to be punished, doesn't it? Otherwise, all our experiences as humans, well, they're morally neutral. And we know that's not the case. We all know that. Justice requires it. Now, Sam Harris's idea that we have no real choice, no real uh, moral obligation in our actions is the result It's just a result of past experiences or neurological states. It doesn't cut it, right? Whether that's Larry Nassar or Hitler or whoever, it's not good enough. But it's not just these men who deserve justice. It's me. It's you. See, the truth of the matter is we all have a moral debt. We can never pay it off ourselves. And so the words of Hebrews 4.13 are sobering to us, to us all. The writer says this, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. So if God is both good and just, He must hold us to account for our sin. And Hebrews 4.13 says He will. Now is peace possible, we asked. Well, peace comes in what we see next because Jesus says, well, it's finished. Come back to verse 30 and look at his words with me. When he had received the drink, Jesus says these words, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In the Greek, it's a single word. He cries out, tetelestai, which means I've done it. It's over. It's complete. He's done it. See, the cross is this great moment of justice and accountability for sin. It is that. It's where sin is dealt with, fully done. What does the cross achieve? Well, it achieves peace between God and sinners. Sin paid for, relationship restored, peace achieved. The cross is the place 
where evil is brought to an end and sin and guilt are paid for. What a wonderful thing. Yes, peace is possible. Yes, at the cross and only at the cross. For all who, excuse me, who would turn to Jesus and cry and trust the cry, it is finished. It says, with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus willingly gives up his spirit, his life. Now, 1 Peter three eighteen says it like this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That is the peace, the restored relationship that the cross declares is open. So where is your guilt? Where are your mistakes? At the cross, it's finished. What about your shame? Finished. The eternal consequence of your sin? Finished. Your broken relationship with your maker? Finished. Peace achieved? Relationship restored? Is peace possible? At the cross and only at the cross. It said Buddha's last words... Before he died, I wasn't there, so conjecture, but they say, he said, strive without ceasing. His last, most famous last words. Jesus' last words, before he faced death, it is finished. Strive without ceasing, it is finished. Religion says, finish the work, keep going. The cross says, receive the finished work. Religion says, Go after it. Go get it. Do more. Jesus says, I've done it. It's over. Trust it. So here's the challenge that the cross asks of each of us. Have you trusted Jesus that he's put an end to your debt, your debt with God on the cross? Have you trusted that it is finished? Verse 34, having watched Jesus die right before his eyes, John who writes this, he's an eyewitness to these events. He says, I know what I saw, my testimony is true, I'm an eyewitness and I'm telling you them why. So that you may believe. He wants you to believe. He wants you to hold on to this. He wants you to trust it is finished. So have you? If if that's not something you're not yet sure about, then come and speak to someone. Come speak to me or another Christian. We'd love to talk to you more about it. Come back on Sunday and see what happens next. Did you notice in the passage as it was read, the Jews, they're very eager to get the bodies off the cross. Why? Because it's going to contaminate their festival, their celebration of the Passover, the Sabbath that's coming. They're eager to get on with their religious activity. They're in a hurry. So they get the Romans to come and break the, uh, the criminal's legs. And they check Jesus out. He's already dead. They're too busy to notice what's going on. They're occupied with their religious practice to pay attention to the reality of the cross, that it is finished. And I just wonder, are we like that at Easter sometimes? Are we in danger of treating Easter like this? We've got places to be, things to do, moments of peace and pleasure to chase after. Don't miss the reality here that Jesus' finished work on the cross. Don't miss that because you're too busy. See, the wonderful truth of Easter is that through His death, Jesus has made peace possible. He's made peace possible, peace with God for eternity. That's a wonderful thing and a thing we get to celebrate. How about I pray for us as we think about that?
Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to suffer for us, taking on our guilt, our sin, and our judgment so that we can have peace through a relationship with you. Help us to reflect on and recognize the truth, beauty, freedom, and the peace in the reality of the cross. Help us to recognize that it was finished for us. Amen.